Corinthians chapter 10. You're probably already there for the last 12 minutes. Anyway, we began last week looking at the first six verses together, and we began highlighting these virtues of spiritual soldiering. Paul, certainly through multiple words and phrases in this paragraph, utilizes military words, a military motif to present to us an opportunity as God's people to soldier up, if you will, to get geared up, prepared up to protect the gospel, its content and its progress. Are you with me? That's what he's done with Corinth. We know that. We don't want to go back and, and review all those things. We've studied about this church, but we learned last week that the first virtue of soldiering, the first responsibility we have is more uh, dispositional, but it does require an activity. And we found that activity in the word urge there. Um, this is a passionate plea for every person who owns the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior to come alongside one another and to learn together what it means to protect the content and the progress of the gospel. You know chapters 8 and 9 just concluded with this uh, interdependent multi-church effort to collect resources to share with the church at Jerusalem so that they could once again enjoy or continue to enjoy gospel progress in and from their midst in Jerusalem with these other churches and uh, and certainly now that that offering is complete and will be soon delivered, uh, the Apostle Paul zeroes back here to these individual responsibilities to remind the Corinthian people, you know what, unfortunately, there could always be this, this uh, slender nerve that exists of unbelief in any good Bible-teaching church, Bible-believing church, and it certainly did at Corinth. And, and I'm calling you alongside myself to learn together in this passionate way, right? Because it's worth being passionate about to protect the content and the progress of the gospel. He goes on in the second half of verse one through verse three to talk about uh, soldiers needing to be principled. We derive that word primarily from the word courage last week and we took that word courage and we stepped forward in understanding what it means to, uh, to, to not be worldly but to be godly in this protection as a soldier of the content and the progress of the gospel, you can go back and listen to that sermon on your own if you're unable to uh, be here last week or see it since. And this morning, we'd like to continue on into verses, the following verses to look at two more virtues of soldiering uh, in a local church uh, that's protected and healthy and spiritually reproductive. So Paul re-engages here by pointing out that our arsenal in spiritual warfare in the church is spiritual, not physical. Remember, our spiritual foes in the church are foes of the gospel and its progress. We have no gospel, friends, if we have no gospel progress. And there's no meaningful gospel progress without a true protection and understanding of the gospel. You see, the gospel is a living, breathing reality, right? Are you with me? It's, it, it's, it's healthy. It's innately healthy. It's innately forward, right? And for churches to say they have the gospel by merely having the intellectual components of the gospel down pat in their doctrinal statement and to have no gospel progress, they really have no gospel because the gospel that they're talking one is just merely an intellectual gospel. Right? It is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could say that personally. Some of us might be able to say, hey, I know where the gospel's at. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 4, boom, it's right there. Here's the, here's the data, here's the details. And you could take me down the old-fashioned Romans road. You can take me down through all that content of the gospel, and you can say, I got it here. I believe I got it here. Are you ready? But you have no gospel unless you got it here. If you can't see my foot, I'm not that flexible. Are you with me? 
Folks, I can't be more serious about this. You have no gospel if you have merely an intellectual grasp of its content. Just let that sink in. As a matter of fact, those who just merely have an intellectual grasp of the content of the gospel and have no feet, right, shod with the preparation of the gospel, I would say that they could potentially be the immediate enemy of the church. Because an intellectual grasp of the gospel can lead to an intellectualism of the gospel, and you could become an entity to yourself at the expense of mission. Happens all over the place in Christian history. Happens in our time, every time. Happened in my time as a kid growing up. That's another conversation, maybe a podcast. Hey, let's do a podcast. Right? The content and the progress of the content of the gospel is always the bullseye of unbelief that they try to hit. And within the church, it can take many spiritual forms. Now, you guys are familiar with the phrase, I can do all things through a verse out of context. Uh, Yes, this is one of those passages where we've heard used for any number of folks who want to talk spiritual warfare of all kinds. The 80s and 90s, and even the early part of the 21st century was flooded with books, articles, sermons about spiritual warfare. Uh, Many of them, you know who they are. Many of those books still exist in paper or digital form in your resource library. It is true, according to Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in high places. It is true, 2 Corinthians 4 teaches us that the God of this world is in control of anything immaterial that's anti-God or anti-gospel. We get that. But in this immediate context, it's not exclusively about spiritual warfare. It's about waging war if, if, unbelief exists in the church and that unbelief is trying to peddle. Remember back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The unbelief in the church of Corinth was trying to peddle its philosophies and its thoughts and ideologies and distract people away from gospel progress. This is local church application You sharpen that applicational pencil even farther by saying, you know what? It's probably to a very small portion of any church because this letter's written to a church. And remember, when any author of Scripture writes in the New Testament, they're primarily writing assuming faith. Remember? Super important, especially if you're a younger believer. Whenever you read the New Testament, New Testament authors write assuming people are born again. They're assuming they're born again. They're willing to assume they're going to grow. And if they're stuck, that the word of God will have an influence in their life to get them back in fellowship with God, to get them growing again. And then we talk about the humanity. So why I say these two several verses have been taken out of context, because quite frankly, they've been dealt with so much out of their immediate context that it can make it look like the churches main focus should be on fighting unbelief outside of herself. And that's not our job. Are you with me? Right. Yes, it's true. 2 Corinthians 4. Yes, it's true. Ephesians 6. But even in Ephesians 6 and here, it's still talking about the influence of unbelief inside our church. So it's not our responsibility to, to, to really wage war against the dark forces, Satan minions, outside our church. That's God and his angels' business. And they do wage war, don't they? Just read the scriptures, you can see it. Our job outside these walls is to do what Jesus bid us to do when he said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Got it? That's it.
That's it. Simple one-sentence job description for all of us outside the confines of our body. Go be spiritually reproductive. Don't get distracted by all the warfare stuff. As a matter of fact, the only warfare that happens in the church should happen very rarely. And that's if and when unbelief exposes itself and then collectively the strength of the body addresses it with what? Meekness and gentleness. Remember that? In a courageous, principled way. And when it's addressed... It changes or it's expunged and the church is protected and we go on. So I just want to give a little context to what has been taken out of context for a long, long time. Okay. Which has distracted a lot of believers to a new mission outside the church to somehow be focused on the spiritual enemies of the gospel movement outside of herself. And that's really not what the context is saying. Because then you're going to be fighting your corporations that you work with. Then you're going to be fighting the state in which you live and the county in which you live. And then you're going to be putting your gospel gun target on the government of your country and all of its ills. And, and what did Jesus say? When the world fell into sin, it fell into sin and it is unable to jump out of itself. She is what she is and she's only getting worse right so be strong within strengthen each other within I urge you to come alongside right? do this together go deeper together so we can go wider in our gospel influence outside the church and our gospel influence never comes with a and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this this is just what we do. We do our jobs with a gospel goal. Any extracurriculars we do, we do with great commission purpose. Everything we do, because we're called to follow and be fishers of men, this is just why we do what we do. So anyways, we do have an arch enemy. He has multiple names in the scriptures. We know this enemy has a goal and his crosshairs are on the gospel and his progress. For our purposes in this passage, we must understand that the spiritual enemy of the gospel can be local. It is often in the form of someone or a number of people that Satan will use to stop gospel progress in a local church community. Therefore, potentially stopping its progress beyond the influence of that church in that community. I think it's good to pause here and remember the interdependent progress and work that we've just concluded discussing in chapters 8 and 9, don't forget, these churches had an influence in their Jerusalems to the point where they were able to connect with other like-minded churches to have an influence interdependently together for gospel progress in Macedonia and in Achaia reaching back to Jerusalem. That's quite an influence. But they did it together. They did it together. Paul asks the Corinthian people to come alongside him and then come alongside one another to do this gospel protection and progress thing uh, all together. This is the Pledge of Allegiance of the people of Christ. It was Christ's Pledge of Allegiance in the way he glorified his Father. Mark 10, 45, John 17, verses 1 through 5. So how does the Christian soldier ready themselves for this advancement. We found out that if we're going to be Christ-like in our advancement of his mission, that the believer needs to be passionate and principled. We already discussed that. We need to be gathering others around us to join us in the fray. We call this, believe it or not, it is biblical discipleship. What are you doing? Every time you get together to study with someone, you're reproducing God's will in somebody else, which includes the content of the gospel. You're going deeper in the word together. You're galvanizing your partnership together around Christ and his word. Why? To protect the church from unbelief, to protect her mission. Again, the New Testament knows nothing of an individual rugged existence. 
inside the body. There's always something to learn from somebody else, and there's always something someone can learn from you. Right? Are you with me? Right? I hope so. I think so. Pretty confident you are. So we'll keep going. So Paul's saying here, let's march together theologically, philosophically, and practically. So this potential unbelief within us can't separate us from our forward, intentional, planned gospel movement. And he writes, let's do it with meekness and gentleness. Let's also do it with courage. He says it's ready. It's time for us to to work together to to meet this foe face-to-face, if necessary, in this way for all these good reasons. So, be passionate, be principled. Virtue number three, be proficient. We announced these to you last week, and then we're going to be prepared. Be proficient, verse four. It says here, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Remember, Paul is saying unbelief is easy to spot. He's saying before you go into battle, you do some battlefield surveillance. There are indicators that the enemy may already be there, and if so, this is how you spot them. This is how you find them. This is how they expose themselves. It takes skill. It takes partnership. We do this together. He's saying the one way you identify the enemy in the church is by seeing who's trying to distract the flock from the gospel and its progress by merely using human means to distract it from both. That's simple. It's simple. We're going to identify those enemy tactics in this final point today, these final points today, but for now Paul is teaching us that our weapons are not. He describes what they are by telling us what they're not. They're not of the flesh. Their origin is not found in mankind their fallenness, their ideologies, their philosophies, their false theologies. It's where it's not found. But if you're going to find them, you're going to find them peddling something that distracts the church away from the gospel and its progress. And he says here that that our weaponry is not of the flesh, but is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, it says in verse 4. You see that? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. They are by nature not of this world. They are spiritual. Their ability is sourced in God. As a matter of fact, the root for the word divinely is theos. It is God. It actually is saying these are (laughs) God-powered. These are God-sourced. These are influenced by God himself. Many of you, if you have followed the the fight on terrorism over the last 20-some years, you've probably watched some military maneuvers. You've probably studied how the United States would, would s- survey a particular place in the Middle East and they would seek to identify where the terrorists were hiding and they would typically hide themselves in mountainous regions or, or deep underground. And once they found them, they would use a particular kind of bomb. I don't know, you military people probably know the specific names. I just call them bunker busters. Remember that? They have the ability to pierce the side of a mountain or go straight down into the ground and not immediately explode when they hit the surface, but they penetrate and it's boom from the inside. Right? Now, why do you use that illustration? Eliminating the enemy with the weapon cannot really be seen by the naked eye until you see the explosion effects outside where the bomb penetrated. They're powerful to eliminate the unseen forces of terrorism darkness, the enemy in hiding, if you will. 
That's what our weapons are like. They're spiritual bunker busters. It's not something that is, that is able to be immediately seen by the eye, but it's the unseen ability of God himself through the power of the gospel that pierces a human soul and performs omnipotently, all-powerfully performs a change of life, creates, recreates a soul, if you will, in newness of life, takes that soul from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We call that the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit from within. And then, boy, the influence is seen without on a positive sense, right? You cannot deny the changed lifestyle of anyone who's truly saved. My goodness, it's obvious both to the saved and the unsaved, isn't it? Right. It's powerful, it's influential, it's from the inside, it's out. Sin is destroyed. Power that sin had over them is, is destroyed as they walk in the spirit and walk in newness of life and being renewed they can enjoy this fellowship with their creator that's been provided for them through Jesus Christ. It says that our weapons are powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. This is the only time this word's used in the New Testament, by the way. As a matter of fact, we find it used once in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures, and it's actually used once in Solomon's poetry in Proverbs 21, verse 22, where it says, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Just a simple axiom of wisdom truth. Man trusts in what they can see, right? And God's people trust in their creator whom they've never seen and his ability to do his will on earth. If you trace the use of this particular Greek word back into pre-church history, you can find it used by certain guys like Philo of Alexandria, who was a contemporary of Christ. He was, he was born before Christ was on the earth. He was a disciple of Plato that predated Philo. He was a Jewish man who sought to be the first to harmonize the teachings of the Torah with Greek philosophy. And he said this of a fortress, this word. It's a prepared speech of persuasive words against the honor of God. A prepared speech of persuasive words against the honor of God. There was also a physical reality of what a stronghold was. It was a military site within a city that would be positioned best to defend the city against attack. There was one in Acro-Corinth, which is a reason why Paul would have used this word. The Corinthian eye would have seen what a fortress was, so they would have known what it was philosophically, and they would have known what it was physically. The Stoic and Cynic philosophers of the time would allude to this fortress in their own writings, using the term for their own purposes. Seneca, a philosopher of Paul, a contemporary in Paul's time, should I say, would use this stronghold analogy to support a man pursuing a rugged individualism as the successful drive of his life. He would teach a stronghold was a fortification of the soul by reasonable arguments to render it impregnable under the attacks of adverse fortune. Philosophers of the time would teach by your own, be your own fortress. Be your own stronghold. Do life the way you define life to be lived. Grab what you can get while you can get it, and you'll know independent life success within your own stronghold. This was the influence of Greek philosophy on the day. So apparently the word stronghold is known in the culture of the time. It also could be known as a spiritual or figurative reality. So a stronghold, Paul teaches, is the spiritual fortress or the enemy that requires spiritual weaponry to finish it off, to remove it. With the culture of the time, these invisible fortresses were 
or were usually human philosophy or ideology that distracted men away from the gospel and its progress. To oppose these fortresses, to pull them down, Paul is teaching that only spiritual weapons are divinely sourced with power for their overflow. One author, Cruz, writes this of the need for Paul's admonition to the church. This constitutes, he says, an admonition to the church and particularly her leaders for the temptation is ever present to meet the challenge of the world, which is under the sway of the evil one with the carnal weapons of this world, with human wisdom and philosophy, with the attractions of secular entertainment, number one, with the display of massive organizations, Number two, add philosophy, number three. Not only do such weapons fail to make an impression on the strongholds of Satan, but a secularized church is a church which, having adopted the standards of the world, has ceased to fight and is herself overshadowed by the powers of darkness. So what's the church's spiritual weaponry? Well, number one, it's the gospel itself, isn't it? Romans 1.16, the same author wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And Corinth was full of both. By the way, the word power here is the same root as we find here in verse number four. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. It's that Greek word you, most of you, may, some of you may be familiar with, the root dunamis there. This is, this is uh, unstoppable God force, if you will. Creator force on the human soul, bound up in the content of this message that when intellectually understood and volitionally committed to, changes a life by the power of God. Our weapons of warfare are scorned by the world and yet most feared by the powers of darkness. And I think we need to be reminded of this. The weapons of warfare, these spiritual weapons of warfare, these divinely empowered weapons are scorned by the world and yet most feared by the powers of darkness. So what do the unseen forces of darkness, what are they afraid about you? What makes you their enemy? Obviously, your gospel, but number one, your evangelism. Your evangelism. Every time you sit around the word of God and you worship the Lord through reading it, studying it with each other, teach it, preach it your enemy becomes more fearful of you the way you live that's been changed by the Jesus that you own the day you were born again your enemy grows fearful of you if you're living righteously the life that Christ lived We're going to look at a text in a little bit later in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Apparently, it was the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ that God's people looked forward to that caused the enemies of the gospel to fear them. You know what we call that? Hope. Not hope that the world knows, right? But the hope that you know causes the world to fear because that hope purifies you even as he is pure it engenders a joy in you that the world cannot find and there's no way in the world they can figure out how you could be so joyful when things are falling apart like they are and it's your hope and when they ask you about the hope that rests within you and you tell them that it's Jesus, then you're back to reason number one why they're fearful of you, which is evangelism. It's Jesus, my friend. That's all I can tell you. 
Why do you live the way you live? It's Jesus. That's all I can tell you. Why do you have the joy that you have? It's Jesus. He's my hope. I may see him today. Why do you tell me not to call you between 6 and 6.30 in the morning? <laughs> well, it's because I want to get to know my Jesus more through the word of God. And that's when I read. You see, folks, these divinely empowered weapons are all weapons of gospel influence in your life if you've truly been born again. And they're not just your weapons, they're the weapons of the church that we enjoy together to protect not gospel content, but progress too. So when you think about that into the, the footprints that we put forward to you about spiritual reproduction, folks, the reason why we give you hands and feet to spiritual reproduction is for this reason. It confronts unbelief, it expunges unbelief so that we can have progress together. These just aren't everyone win one, follow one, lead one, and take one because it's a nice little program. These are the weapons of our warfare. And they're empowered and given to us by the same God who said, let there be light and let there be new life in you. Corinthians are beginning to own this more and more as they're refound, so to speak, their fellowship with God and they're gaining more and more confidence and we'll find out here in verses five and six that so much so that Paul's saying, you might be able to confront this unbelief on your own, you may not even need me. <laughs> That's the goal. So these are the weapons of Paul's life. He picks up the warfare motif again at the end of his life. Let's go over to 2 Timothy 4. I told you we'd do that. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, and let's look at verses 7 and 8. You guys know, if you know your Bibles well, been saved for any certain amount of time. For those of you that have been saved more recently, uh, Paul wrote a lot of books, two-thirds of the New Testament. He wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are three letters to pastors of local churches, kind of telling them how the church should function, what her focus should be. But he's at the end of his ministry here. He's kind of concluding his ministry here, and he says in verses 7 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's start, look at verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He's talking, there's all kinds of analogies to the use of that metaphor, the drink offering. He's coming to the end of his time. He served the Lord well. Time of my departure has come. And here's that military motif again, right? I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who love his what? His appearing. I mentioned that a little bit ago. Think about this, folks. He's fought a good fight. We know that he himself said that the power, our power in this fight comes from the gospel, Romans 1.16. All those places that Paul uses this military motif, and even when he doesn't, he talks about the weapons of our warfare we've already listed. He says here that if I utilize that weaponry faithfully, then I fought a good fight. If you really want to know what it means to be faithful, it's the proper utilization of weaponry, spiritual weaponry, with the right disposition. It's the right position with the right disposition. And it includes here loving his imminent appearing. So anyways, the spiritual warfare thing is not all that complicated. Anytime you take a text out of its context, that's when you make something complicated. And in the spirit of trying to make it easily understood, we make it difficult to understand. Inside our local church, the weapons of our warfare are here. You keep, you keep being armed with those with the right disposition, then unbelief will be afraid. And that's okay. Unbelief will be convicted. And that's certainly okay. And then there's an opportunity to reach unbelief within the church. And if it doesn't respond, there's an opportunity to protect the church from unbelief. 
So as believers, we become proficient with the skilled use of our weaponry. Certainly sobriety about this. From a soldier's standpoint, preparing for battle, for certain there is. We have young men currently in boot camp, finishing boot camp and out of boot camp. We have soldiers, Marines, Navy seamen, all in our church, Air Force, that are now prepared to go into and to be sent into battle. All of us know how familiar they've got to be with each other and with their weapons. Only to be used, as we said last week, at last resort for the protection of life. Right? Well, this is the protection of spiritual life in the local church. We've got to know our weapons. We've got to be familiarizing ourselves with them. I've never been in the military. I've talked to lots of people in the military. And there are certain processes they go through in boot camp and beyond that never stop being practiced processes in their lives of taking apart a weapon and putting a weapon back together. Taking it apart, putting it back together until they are blindfolded and they can do it. So you would say, well, that's kind of boring. They know that it has to happen for the protection of life and the progress of life. So when we talk about evangelism, the influence of the word of God on our lives personally and publicly, we talk about righteous living and we talk about a growing faith and we talk about loving the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 6, right? The weapon of prayer. And we talk about doing all these things personally and corporately together, then we must and we shall by God's grace. So this is why we train together, folks, in discipleship. Disciple-making really is the boot camp that always prepares us for battle together. We pray together. We feast on the word together. We live together. We grow together. We anticipate the return of the Lord together. We worship together. And it's all sourced in the beautiful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as verses 5 and 6 say, we remain prepared. To do what? To do what? It wraps up here as we wrap up. There's a powerful verb in these two verses, and it's found in verse 6. Let's read these again. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. The word ready here just means to be prepared. That's where we get the main point. Just be prepared. And we are ready to do what's in verse 5, to do what's in verse 6, to continue it and even complete it if necessary. Paul wants to be prepared with the Corinthians. He wants them to be strong enough to fight their own battles. There's a great lesson to be learned here. He says here, whenever your obedience is complete at the end of verse 6, in other words, after you've done all that you can do on your own, then I'm willing to come in and assist, but I might not have to. This wording is a very strong reminder to any local church that they need together to be as spiritually strong as possible. No soldier in his right mind wants to always fight in the battlefield alone. Beware of those who love to fight alone. I've seen enemies infiltrate the flock for years. I've been in this Christian church thing for 53 years of my existence. My dad was a pastor. I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ when I was five. So for 48 years of my existence, from what the Bible teaches, the Holy Spirit's been indwelling me, been teaching me, been using the word. I grew up as a pastor's kid. 
I've been a pastor part and full time for 35 years, and you see these enemies, these ideologies, these speculations, these philosophies, this rugged individualism that's purely secular kind of attack the church or try to in a lot of different forms, in a lot of different ways. Some of them are actually quite comical. <laughs> and, and some of them are quite sobering because the comical ones are the ones that that people try to bring in the front door the first time they meet you and they think that you're not wise to what they're trying to do. And the more sober ones are the ones that are able to hide it in their hearts for a long time and even become deacons and elders. And then they kind of unzip and kind of show you who they've been all along. But nonetheless, they're individuals peddling something of all these kinds and they end up being individual against gospel content and progress. What I find out about individual pagan fighters is that the first people they find in their battlefield, because I'll tell you what, they scan their battlefields really well. Somehow, unbelief's able to walk into a church and immediately find those people in the church who are trying to do Christian warfare alone. They find the weakest link first. And they'll nuzzle up. They'll take them out to a steak dinner. They'll schedule exercise with them. They'll be the best friend you have. Because they're at war. So if you say, Pastor Tim, I'm going to continue to do church alone, I'm going to continue to do my ministry alone, or you're going to continue to do your thing alone, and, and I don't think I'll ever do anything but my two services a week, come in, sit down, leave, go through the motions. You, you have fallen prey to the secular philosophies and ideologies of the world, and the enemy's targets on you first as a rugged individual inside the local church, and they'll be successful. Remember 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Unbelief in the church, when it exposes itself, people follow. Write the text down, cross-reference it right next to here. 2 Peter 1 and 2. Right, these are unbelievers that deny the Lord that bought them. Right? That's what the text says. I don't know. It's what it says. And they're able to lead many away. Many who? I don't know. Study for yourself. Second Peter 2, 1 and 2. It's right there. Unbelief will do this. And they'll do it for someone that gives them an ear who's alone. Someone who gives an ear to some potential unbelief who's not alone, that's got someone partnering with them in the faith as they partner with the whole flock and its mission, that person can listen but they've got the discernment and the collective wisdom to say, you know what, I'm not sure that's exactly where their church is headed. <laughs> right? If you scratch your head when it doesn't itch and you kind of say, ah, right? But if you're doing this alone, it's a lot more difficult to, to do that. So be prepared. Paul's asking them to be prepared, to prepare themselves. He might not even have to, when he arrives, and by the way, he gives them, remember we said last week, these two to three months more, to let the letter bake, right? For a lot of reasons, this is one of them. Strengthen yourselves enough, or when I arrive, I don't have to put my finger on the unbelief among you and confront it in the church that God allowed me to plant some time ago. I have a whole list here of forms of unbelief, current ideologies, current trends, current philosophies, which are rich, basically age-old philosophies stemming clear back to Greek philosophy and, and, um, and Jewish Talmudic philosophy, uh, all forward, and, they, and every generation of mankind, they just take on a different name. 
There's some new things. There's some old things with different names. I've got a whole list here of things that I've seen, that I've experienced, that came in here to try to stop, affect the content of the gospel and its together progress. I just don't have the time to list them all. If you want to sit down sometime and find out what all these were, I'd be glad to share those with you. Paul says here, we're to be actively destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Jesus is the knowledge of God in this context. You can go back into the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and you'll see it there. This is the gospel, right, that's under attack. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the explication of God. And we've got a written word inspired, preserved for us. He said, but we're going to be seeking to eliminate these speculations and lofty things. You follow it back again to the culture of the time. The Greek words used here are just simply we're going to be eliminating the intellectual arguments, the reasonings erected by human beings that distract people away from gospel mission. Since they're taking every thought captive to knowledge of God, obedience to Christ, you can't separate the two in the context. Jesus is the knowledge of God. He came to do his will, so his obedience is God's plan for his life. And anything that distracts us from Christ's likeness or gospel progress, it might not be immediately ugly or dark, but if it's a distraction, we've got to put it in its place so progress can continue. So Paul's just saying here that if your tendency is to be taken away with the philosophical arguments of the day, and thought processes of the day, then this is what you need to do with each. Cruz, in his commentary, says, to the Greek of Paul's day, who epitomized the worshiper of human wisdom, the word of the cross was mere foolishness to them. Paul is trying to say here, too, it can be the reasonings, the intellectual thought processes that absorb our attention away from even the mission of the cross. And a good soldier brings this tendency under control and seeks gospel progress with his or her church together. Paul is basically saying that unless these philosophies, these intellectual processes and distractions are set aside or pulled down, your high tower could become your own tomb. Again in verse 6, he says, we're ready to punish it if you guys aren't able to deal with it by the time we get there. The method of operation of unbelievers has been detailed by Paul in this letter, and he's ready to expunge the illicit intentions of unbelief if they raise their head when he arrives. I think it's also wise to note this point again that Paul gave the Corinthians another two to three months, as I said a few minutes ago, to get ready to do this themselves. Unbelief was known for their desire to maintain a rift between the Jew and the Greek. We talked about that. They had a strong tendency to conjoin outside philosophies and ideologies with mosaism in order to tempt born-again Jews away from the flock in Corinth. Unbelief just loves to divide. We've talked about that. That's their fleshly tactics of warfare. Their intentions were to adulterate the gospel with religious works, not necessarily salvation or sanctification towards Christ's likeness. So Paul says here, we're prepared. It's a present active participle in the Greek language combined with an adjective here. Boy, we're really ready. And we are really, really, really going to stay ready. And again, here he finishes with a final motif of military force in nature because the word ready is an adjective here of military use in that day. And I think it's good for us to notice here as we wrap up this particular paragraph how Paul keeps himself the subject of the sentence. In the closing two verses of the paragraph as he began with himself the subject of the sentence. Someone's got to be willing to do this. (laughs) 
And he immediately lets us know it's just never all about him or one person by the urge. We urge all of you to come alongside. Let's know the virtues, the spiritual virtues of our weaponry, which pulls these fortresses down, which takes every thought and motive and brings it captive to the obedience of Christ. And let's make sure that we do all we can with the right disposition to protect the content and the progress of the gospel. And folks, we try to do that here with our mission statement. That's why we quote it all the time, because it's sourced in a lot of Bible verses. Right? Doctrine's the what, philosophy's the why, and your practice is the how of Christian ministry. What, why, and how? So our mission statement has a little philosophy and a little practice in it. We exist to glorify God by evangelizing the lost, mission forward, and equipping the saints with the goal of Christ's likeness. That's our mission. That's why we're here. That's why God saved you. That's why he placed you here at Grace Church of Mentor. No matter what Bible-believing church you're in, that's why you're in it to be indoctrinated, to learn it together, go deeper within so that we can go broader without. God expects you to be spiritually reproductive and now you know your enemy hates reproduction. Anything you can do to distract us away from it? That's what his war room's about. Right? We've learned what our war room is. So we'll close. All right? Let's all stand for prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the simplicity of this text. Certainly, Lord, we trust we've studied it within its context. I trust, Lord, that uh, what the Corinthians heard, what it meant is meant the same thing to us this morning. If not, Lord, we pray the Spirit of God would help us fill in those gaps so that we can go forward together just continuing to understand the joy of gospel progress as a local church so that we can continue to be that encouragement not just to each other but to other local churches that long for gospel progress too and that we can do it together as we await the return of our Savior. In Jesus' name.